30. For me, for, to me, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that, because of my coming to you, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Jesus, one thing, or just this one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one, in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated for just a moment. Am I on? Yeah, we good? Doesn't sound like it. Am I on? No? Kids, y'all can go ahead and go to the back. We'll go ahead and start that way. Yeah, it's green. All right, well, there it is. Good morning. Um, we're going st- to be this morning at the end of Philippians uh, chapter 1, so you guys can go ahead and turn there. Um, I just want to start with this this morning. You, you should all, sitting in this room, we should all want to die. That's my opener. How's that? <laughs> uh, here's the deal. We, we should really want to die, but as I read this passage, I thought about this, the, the thought was that none of us really do want to die. But in verse 21, Paul says clearly that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? To die is gain. That's why we should want to die. Even, and e- even if we understand this verse, if you've been to seminary or you've studied and read and you understand this particular verse on a deep and theological level, I still have doubts that most of us would actually believe it. Because if we truly believed that dying is gain, none of us would fear death. Right? We would welcome it instead. So I want to take you back for a minute. When we, when we named RJ, right? So we didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. Sharice wanted a surprise and wanted to wait. And since she was carrying the baby around her belly, she won. Um, and so we waited. We had a couple of names picked out. And and uh, I, I was named after my grandfather, who was kind of my, you know, my best friend growing up. And so uh, that's kind of where I was leaning, is it toward Johnny Reynolds Moore Jr. And Sharice is like, well, I don't know. We'll see. So after RJ was born, uh, they bring him and, and put him in Sharice's arms. And she looks at me, you know, this beautiful moment and says, hey, he's, he's Johnny Reynolds Moore Jr. Awesome. Great. Love it. Then it became this idea, well, what do we call him? Because Johnny was what they called my grandfather. And it's also what my father-in-law goes by a lot. We didn't want to get into Reynolds, like, uh, you know, like uh, my roommate in college, his name was Tim. He was the junior, and they would call the house Big Tim or Little Tim. So we didn't want to get into Big Reynolds, Little Reynolds. And my wife's like, I don't want some old Mississippi redneck boy named Junior. So anybody named Junior, no offense, you're probably not from Mississippi, you're okay. Um, and so it was like, what do we do? So my natural instinct, right, was, was to do what I assume all coaches do. Uh, as we decided what to call him, 
I had to decide, is, is, is it going to sound good over a PA system? Is it going to make for a good sports headline? So it was like, you know, now batting. You know, he robbed me of never playing baseball. So we went, now batting, you know, RJ. Oh, that sounds good. We can go with RJ. We can do that. And then, you know, a lot of things went with that. But, but we had this idea where I really, Sharice indulged me to let me sort of in that moment, in that little bit of time, you know, plan out uh, our kids' uh, entire sports future <laughs> so that the headlines would read exactly as we wanted to. And if you spent much time around either me or Sharice, but I would say especially me, um, then you probably feel like I talk too much about my kids. Because I, I like to, for lack of a better word, uh, brag on them, right? I am genuinely proud of them and what they've accomplished, how they live their lives. And, and really their lives and their plans have brought us so much joy that we just can't help but talk about it. And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't feel that at all, mention one of their names around me, and then 30, 45 minutes later, you're going to regret, like, I just want to know how they're doing, right? Uh, so just keep that in mind when you're talking to me. And I'd be lying to you if, if I said that I haven't spent a significant amount of time thinking about what their futures might be like. You know, and some of you guys that have kids who, have, who are growing up, who are not just babies anymore, you've experienced this. We would think about what it was going to be like when they would talk and communicate with us, right? Like it might be like frustration, like why are you crying? I don't understand what you want. Or it might just be like, man, you're laughing, having a great time. I wish I would know what you're thinking right now. But we had all these thoughts. We wanted them to talk to us. And now sometimes I can't get one of them to stop talking. And I'm not going to mention any names. I don't want to call them out from stage. But let's just say it was a lot quieter at the house this summer until this weekend. Um, and yes, uh, I am making fun of someone for talking a lot. That's just how much she talks, right? Uh, we couldn't wait, really, until they developed their interest. They started playing sports or getting involved in other activities. We imagined them as they accepted Christ and followed him in baptism. We envisioned their first day of school. I'm getting choked up. Woo. Kids will do that to you. Like their successes, successes they would have in elementary and middle and high school. We've anxiously... We're in that stage of life where we've anxiously anticipated where they're going to go to college. Like, we've dreamed with them about what their future careers would be, where that might take them, right? As I think about it, I just want to paint this picture for you. I, as I, as if I were to envision this, I can vividly see this picture where RJ is changing the world for better, right? Either, either behind the scenes or that he's out in front in some, some way as he serves the public for their greater good. I, I can see him coaching his kids' soccer team, his flag football team, and us getting to... To, to watch that. I can see Gracie in a hospital serving kids and their families through, through, her, church, through her chosen field. I, I can see sick and hurting families able to see the love of Christ shine brightly through her, through her sweet spirit, her deep love for kiddos. I see Caroline serving in the mission field, probably in a foreign land I've never been to and have never seen. I can see our family taking short-term mission trips and serving as a team alongside her and her family. See lots of little grandkids running around. Makes you feel a little old to even say that. Sorry, Sharice. I can see us traveling across the country and probably the world to spend time with them and to spoil them like grandparents do and then to leave their, their parents with the aftermath of that spoiling, right? I think about what God might have in store for me and Sharice. Maybe that looks like us being missionaries. Maybe that's church planning. Maybe that's growing old right here with you guys at Covenant Church in Bozier. 
I share all of this today to show you that these are things that we want to be around for. I'm not just envisioning this. Like, I want to experience this. We don't want to die. We don't want to miss those things, right? And, and not being around to see grandkids or to, to experience life with adult kids, like, that doesn't seem like much of a gain to me. And I'm willing to bet that I'm not the only one here today that feels that way. We want to experience these things with our kid, but it doesn't change the fact here that the Apostle Paul still clearly says to die is gain. And if we read on a little, I think we'd probably all say we agree with him. So I want to read verses 21 through 24 again. It says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul says that he's torn between these two ideas, right? But he would clearly here rather depart. Because that means he'd rather die, because that means he gets to enter the presence of the Lord for all of eternity. And that's what he truly wants. That's his desire. This option, he says, is far better. And I'm going to give you this for free this morning, but notice here that Paul doesn't say anything about heaven. He doesn't talk about the streets of gold or the mansions or the cattle on a thousand hills or the jewels in his crown. What he says is, I get to depart and be in the presence of Christ. That's what heaven's about. That's why we should see dying as gain. Do we feel that way? I'd probably say yes. Like we, we would all as believers agree that being with Christ is far better than being with anyone else in the world. Yet, I still want to grow old with Sharice. I want to enjoy many of the things that God has given us as earthly blessings, all of which I'm aware are far lesser than being in his presence. I know this and I believe this, yet if I'm honest with you today, I still don't want to depart and miss all these things. I just believe that, unfortunately, this is the overwhelming sentiment of a lot of Christians today and probably a lot of Christians who have come before us. So, so then what is the alternative, right? If, if Whether you're like me and you have trouble really wrapping your mind around the idea of wanting to depart, of wanting to die and to be with Christ, or whether you, you're sitting here right now and you're longing for the day that you are no longer in this world, in the meantime, we should be listening to Paul's first statement in verse 21, where he says that to live is Christ, right? So in other words, Christ is Paul's sole purpose and his only reason for living. As harsh as this may sound to some of us, Paul isn't consumed with lesser things like finding a wife, like raising kids, like having grandkids. He's not consumed with the things of the world. Matt Chandler says that in the logic of the gospel, there are no alternatives to Christ. Every other option is no option at all. The way I see it, Paul is very emphatic in his decorative first statement, to live. To really live is to live as though Christ is all that matters. So as I wrote this, I really wrote this question to myself. Uh, you can apply to yourself if you'd like, but I know for me, the question really here is, is Christ of the utmost importance to me? When I hold my life up for examination, what really stands out? 
Is it Christ shining through, or is it any number of lesser things? And I want to clarify to you that these these lesser things aren't necessarily bad things. Like, I, I know that raising my kids well and wanting to see what God has in store for them, it isn't a, a wrong thing. It isn't a bad thing, right? However, it is absolutely a lesser thing, and we need to, like, I need to live in that truth. Wanting or desiring lesser things isn't necessarily wrong, but when we want or desire them more than we desire to be with Christ, that is But when we're focused on Jesus as the ultimate purpose for life, we see both of these parts of the statement happen. We live as Christ, and we also anxiously await our time to enter the presence of God because we now understand that to die truly is to gain. So we consider both options here, just like Paul did. I want to look at where Paul landed because he does say that he's hard-pressed between the two. He says that he wants to depart and be with Christ, yet he believes that it's necessary to stay on the church's account. He knows now that he, he will remain for their progress and joy in the faith. I think he's just writing this out. Maybe even in his head he's thinking this thing out like, hey, I really want to depart and be with Christ, but I know that I need to be here right now, so I'll stay. And as a quick side note, I'm just thinking about this. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi from, from prison, right? So if, if I'm sitting in prison, it's probably pretty easy to say, yeah, yeah, dying is, is much better than sitting here in this prison cell, right? But I want you to think back for a second. We saw a couple of weeks ago those first three converts of the church of Philippi, right? We saw the slave girl who was possessed, and then we saw Lydia and the Philippian jailer, right? So Lydia, remember, was this, this sort of like, like fashionista of her time, right? Like she was very wealthy, probably had multiple homes, and all those homes were likely very, very nice, and Paul very likely stayed with her at some time. So he's experienced both of those, right? And what he's saying here is, if I'm in prison, yes, it would be better to go home right now and to be with Christ. But he's also saying that if I'm wrapped up in the comfort and the opulence of one of the nicest homes in this area, it would still be better to go home and to be with Christ. So he feels called to remain here, even though that's what he he wants to depart, right? Both for two purposes, evangelical purposes and discipleship purposes. He knows that he's called, right, to go help the churches, these believers that he's he's left behind as he moves on. Uh, He's he's called to, to help them grow in their faith, as well as to take the gospel to other parts of the world who don't know Christ yet. So obviously you and I are still here right now, right? We haven't departed, so we're called to the same thing. So what does that look like? If we read down a little bit in verse 27, Paul encourages us then to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul says here that if we are to remain here rather than to depart and be with Christ, then we should live our lives in such a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what does that mean to be worthy? It can mean here that if you're just ascribing worth to it, Paul wants us to live in such a way that shows we have given supreme worth, ultimate value to Christ in all aspects <coughs> excuse me, of our life. <coughs> this weekend I was at a, was picking up Caroline and they had a commitment ceremony. And basically they just kept reminding them that, that basically this, this call that they've, that the, this phrase they've put on them for the entire year as these students who are freshmen in college have trained to go out for their three-month deployment that just says Jesus is worth it. Whatever that is, that whatever, whatever that it is on the other side, <coughs> He's worth it. Matt Chandler says that it's, it, it means living grace 
filled lives that grant patience and mercy and gentleness for the spiritual journeys of others and a respect for the differences and idiosyncrasies we all bring to the Lord's table. And then he reminds us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So I believe that Paul identifies a number of ways here in, in this letter to his beloved church at Philippi that we can live as Christ, that we can live a life that's actually worthy of the gospel. And I think they all lead us really to live, as Paul says in chapter 2, as lights in the world, right? Lights um, amongst a crooked and twisted generation. So ultimately, living a life worthy of the gospel is a life lived, shining the light of Jesus wherever we go. And we have to remember that we can't live without blemish because we've somehow cracked the code and we figured out how to eliminate sin from our life. No, it's, it's because the one who did live without sin, he traded places with us. It says in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Remember that light shines the brightest in the darkness. We should stand out. We should shine as lights because we are set apart. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we don't look like the rest of the world. A dim light in a pile of other dim lights doesn't really stand out. Now, I know, Brandon, you put up a lot of lights at Christmas, uh, and some of you other guys, you're like me. You just, whatever you can get away with, with your kids saying it's okay, you put up. But I know the frustration of unrolling and untangling all these, you know, strands of lights. You try to figure out, like, which ones are working. You plug it in, and there's, like, five lights working, and you're upset, and you're like, okay, I'm going to go back to Target and spend five bucks on another strand. And they, don't, they never have the same ones you have, right? So, so you got to buy a whole new deal. Maybe that's just me. But here's what I know. If I plug in that strand of lights and there's one light that's working, if there's one light, it's easy to identify. It's easy to find. It stands out. Think about how bright it looks because it's so different from all the other lights around it. So how should we live life so that we stand out? Because that's the only way that our life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. So I'm going to look at a few of these things. They're not a complete list. As I, I could be here forever because every time I thought I've got this, oh, no, no, Paul says something else. Like, this is great. And he doesn't even touch really on love there. Like, it's, it's great. But uh, I want to look at a few of these that we see in Paul's letter to this church. So the first way we can do this is that, first, we should live joyfully in a sad and hurting world. Paul mentions joy or rejoicing about 13 times in this letter. At the end of it, we see him pleading with these two women in chapter 4 to be unified in Christ. He calls for the church after that to rejoice. He calls for it twice, right? And he says to rejoice in the Lord. And so if that's where our joy is, what greater thing is there for us to rejoice in? Because everything else in our life will fail us at some point, but not Jesus. Other things may bring us temporary happiness, maybe a fleeting peace, but not Jesus. Because his love is steadfast and unchanging. We can't do anything to gain it. We can't do anything to lose that. Guys, that blows me away. That there's nothing I can do to make him love me more, that I can do to make him love me less. That's, that's an incredible thought because that's not a human thought. But we can find true joy in him because of that. There's an everlasting fountain of overflowing joy from a source that never runs dry, a source that never leaves us empty, that never leaves us alone, a source, the Holy Spirit, who fills us so that we might radiate that joy to others. We should live joyfully. Secondly, we should live fearless in a fearful world. Get what Paul writes. He says that he 
he wants to hear about them standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith, faith of the gospel. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. If you read a little bit further, it shows us this, that this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. You know, when we play opponents in the fall, I want them to turn on game film, and I want every coach in that room to go, you know what, we're about to take a beat down. It's over. We have no shot against this team. And this is what Paul's saying, right? This is what Paul said. When we stand firm in the faith against our opponents, they see clearly their destruction is coming. It's also a sign that we believe in the divine judgment that awaits them and that we have no fear of what may come from them here in this life. This courage is a sign of our sure salvation because without the certainty that the Holy Spirit lives in us, we are destined to live a life of fear. In Romans 5.12, I think it's on the screen, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is coming for us all, whether we want it or not. Because we all have sinned, yet we can rejoice because of what else we know. I love the question that Paul asked in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Paul asked the question after he says there's no, no victory in death, right? He says that, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? They should make that a song. Um, see, sin is the poison that brings death to our life. But Jesus Christ has taken our place on the cross and defeated death on our behalf. So church, rejoice. Rejoice with me today that this world is not our home. We have nothing to fear. Death has no hold on us. The precious blood of Christ has taken all power from death and has rendered it hopeless against the gates of heaven. Live fearless. Third, this is going to be real popular. We should live a life of suffering in a world consumed with ease and comfort. If we look at verses 29 and 30 there, Paul writes, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. God gives us the faith to believe in him, but he also gives us the honor of suffering for his sake. We know already Paul was imprisoned while he was in Philippi, right? We saw the Philippian jailer come to faith. And we, uh, Paul faced oppression and suffering during that time when he first went to Philippi. And then now, as he writes this very letter, is facing the same persecution as he is writing this letter from prison. If we go to chapter 2 and verses 17 and 18, Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Doesn't sound like a very human response there, because Paul doesn't, he doesn't rally the troops to complain and riot about the persecution he's encountered. In fact, he responds in quite the opposite way than most of us would. He says, if, if, if I'm going to be sacrificed for my faith, I'm glad. I'm going to rejoice, and you should rejoice and be glad with me. A life worthy 
of the gospel is one that rejoices when it experiences suffering. And this isn't some twisted affinity for pain or for suffering, simply for suffering's sake, right? This is rejoicing in the fact that we are suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. This is rejoicing that there is beauty and purpose in that kind of suffering. If we go to John 15, verses 20 and 21, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He goes on and says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. I just want to remind you this morning that as they treated the master, so they will treat the disciples. We suffer, but we must remember that Christ suffered first, and his suffering was for us. If it weren't for us, he wouldn't have had to suffer. We even see this at the very beginning of Paul's ministry, right? He's converted on the road to Damascus. And remember, he, he's blinded, right? And he goes, and, and then the Lord appears to Ananias. And Ananias, is, he's like, hey, I need you to go see Paul. Saul at the time, right? And Ananias is like, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> like, I know who that dude is, and he doesn't like us, right? He's like, I kind of like him blinded and weak. Let's just leave him that way. And, and God says, no, no, no. It's not how it works. He said, I'm going to use Saul to take his word to the Gentiles. In Acts 9.16, he, he tells Ananias, for I will show him, Paul, right? I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's just getting started. We still know him as Saul at this time. And I'm just saying in my plans, I'd be like, hey, let me, let me kind of ease him into this Christianity thing, maybe into this suffering thing, but right away, that's not how God had it planned. Right away, instead, God says, I'm going to show you how much you've got to suffer to follow me. A shallow faith or a false gospel conversion, right, that would have led us to just turn and run. But see, Paul has been radically changed by an encounter with Jesus. And so it should be with us. And I really think God meant it when he said he was going to show Paul how much he had to suffer. In, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, in chapter 11, Paul lays out much of his suffering. Let's just look there. I think we had it on the screen. Uh, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Got to put it on there. Three times I was shipwrecked. Because I'm just going to tell you, if I'm with Paul, after the first, second time that he's been shipwrecked, I'm like, bro, I'm not getting on a boat with you, like this is a, three times, he says, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, listen, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Think about the physical things, and then Paul follows up and says, and apart from all the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He doesn't even mention being snake bitten, right? That's, that's, that's it for me, right? Look at all he went through for the sake of making Jesus known. Look at the sufferings he endured simply because Jesus was Lord of his life. On top of those physical troubles, he carried this huge burden for the churches he had planted. His love ran deep for these churches. And he spent much of his time praying for, concerned for those believers. If we look at the letters, we can see 
the intro is mostly, I've been praying for you. He, he, he's expounding on that in a lot of ways. And I just believe that far too often that we buy in to an easy believism. We buy into cultural Christianity. We live in an area that, 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 that sells it crazily. And so many buy into it. It's why the prosperity gospel is so popular because no one wants to suffer. I'd wager to say that none of us, and I'm including myself in this, wake up, you know, every day going, God, I hope today is full of suffering. You know, that's what I want to do. Like, no one really wants that. No, no, we would rather just repeat a simple prayer, right, or a poem, right, get dunked in some water and just call it a good life and go on about our business. But this is not the life we're called to as believers. We are called to a life that is worthy of the gospel, and that is no easy life. Perhaps when we think about a life worthy of the gospel, a life of suffering, we can look to one of the mottos of the Navy SEALs that says the only easy day was yesterday. Church, suffering's coming. It's going to keep coming. We forget that the way of the Christian life is often marked by the way of the cross. James says to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Here's what that full effect is, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I love logic. Follow this logic. Trials or suffering leaves us lacking nothing. Because suffering produces a steadfastness in us that we can't get from a life of ease. We should live a life of suffering. Fourth, we should live humbly in a self-centered world. We see in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Paul says, To do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. We can go to 1 Corinthians 10, 24. It says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Seems like a little bit of a consistent pattern here. Paul's got very, very similar language in letters to two different churches. And it's probably, you know, because the Corinthians and the Philippians and probably the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Romans all act a lot like us when it comes to looking out for number one. You know, I, you guys know I coach, and, and one of the things that, I, that I've come to despise the most about what sports have become is this me-first or me-only attitude that we see so often. It drives me insane. I fight it, and I fight it, and I fight it. And every time you think you've won that battle, some, something else rears its ugly head. But even in all that, I, I can recall, and I'm sure you can, reading stories or maybe seeing a video on Facebook or Instagram about some, it's just some heartwarming sports story. You know, like there's the one where the, 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 the pitcher strikes out his best friend on the opposing team in a state championship game, and he goes and consoles him. I'm like, bro, go celebrate with your team. You just won a state championship. Stop doing that. But he goes and consoles this opponent. I saw one where uh, a football team, I think a, a junior defensive player picked up a fumble or had an interception, was running in the end zone in the state championship game and turned and tossed the ball to a senior defensive player so that he could score in his last game. And so we think about these things, right? Uh, we think about these videos as being special. That they, 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 they warm our heart. But why do they do that? It's because it's so rare. Like we love these videos. We love these stories. Right? They're feel-good stories because we rarely hear them. Because acts of humility 
in life in general, but specifically here in a sports arena, are the exception and not the rule. But these heartfelt words from Paul here are calling us to much more than sharing athletic successes or awards and recognition. These words call us to place the needs of others before our own. So think about it. Do you really count others as more significant than yourself? I doubt it. And I don't mean to be cynical or judge you, right? But it's just uncommon. Do you look to the interest of others before you look to your own? Again, I doubt it. Are you seeking the welfare of your neighbor before your own? Probably not. Yet we're clearly called to these things. If we aim to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, we must think about others before we think about ourselves. I once read that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And so just so you don't think I'm judging you, let me be the first to admit that I almost always think about things in the terms of how they're going to affect me or my family before I think of the impact it's going to have on anyone else. This isn't a very gospel-worthy way of thinking. This is very worldly and it's selfish, and for me, it's a shameful way of thinking. And I just can't help but wonder how much of a difference it would make in our selfish and our sinful world if we all made a point to put others first. As difficult as it would be, it would put the gospel on display for the world to see. And guys, this wouldn't be a dim light or some flickering light because we get up and we go to church and we maybe read our Bible or maybe do a devotional or maybe go to small group. This is not some little, like, doing things. This is the light of Christ in our life shining because we put others before ourselves. So bring the brightest light possible to a dark and sinful world. We put Jesus on the display for the world to see. Because of our human nature is to look out for ourselves first, the world usually sees us. But when we consistently make much of Jesus by making much of others before ourselves, his light is going to shine through to even the darkest places. I really think that, uh, especially in the times that we're living in, maybe this final point may be the most important because it requires us really to embody the other four. So lastly, I want to say that we should live unified in a broken and disjointed world. And Paul doesn't hold back here, right? This whole letter is written from the heart to a church that he loves deeply. Like if you read this letter, it's, it's so much different in a lot of ways than other letters to his church. Like He loves this church. He's pleading with them to be unified. We saw in chapter 2 that he asked them to complete his joy by being in the same mind, by having the same love, by being in full accord and of one mind. He says to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then as he closes this letter, he pleads with Syntec and Euodia to agree in the Lord. These are two women who have labored side by side with Paul for the sake of the gospel. So there's obviously some sort of disagreement, some sort of disunity here in the Philippian church. Sounds kind of familiar to me. You know, we talk about so many things in the church that so often, quite honestly, just don't matter. So what does matter? What matters is our belief in Jesus Christ as Lord of our life, that he is the only way to the Father and eternity with him. You know, Luke reminded us a few weeks ago when he was laying out the book of Philippians that as believers, 
right? We would have more in common with a sex slave in a third world country who's also a believer than we do with our neighbor who's not a believer that might look like us and vote like us and live where we do and went to the same schools that we do. And that's a hard thing to grasp sometimes. And let me just say that I'm the worst about this. I, I, I honestly assume things about some of you simply because we look the same or we go to the same church or we live in the same area. Maybe we were raised in similar ways. Maybe we enjoy the same sports or we root for the same teams or we can at least all root, uh, agree to root against the Cowboys. Amen? Seriously. Like, I miss this so many times, right? I think it's embarrassing to think about. Like, look around us. What's going on in the world right now? Political parties certainly don't unite us. Beliefs on controversial topics are more divisive than ever. And we're even fighting over secondary issues within the church about religious rules or denominational ideals. Like, I've personally spent so much time being angry at and frustrated with people for their stance on stupid things like masks or vaccinations that I'm certain and I know that I've missed the opportunity to celebrate Christ with, them, with, with other believers or to show Christ to non-believers. just because they think differently than I do about things that mean nothing compared to what Christ did for us on the cross. I've also had some of you make me feel inferior or wrong because I don't agree with you about certain things. We've all messed up in this sense, and that's got to stop. Because when we live a life that is truly worthy of the gospel, we hold Christ in higher esteem than anything else in our life. Have you ever been somewhere where you didn't know anyone? Maybe you've been at a, 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 a work gathering or it could even be a, a church function where you're new to the church or whatever. But then you started talking to a few people there. You're, you know, maybe it's one of those things where like, I don't know, I don't anything come with this guy or with this girl. And then all of a sudden you find that one person that's like, oh yeah, he or she likes this and you find this commonality. And so where you went from being uncertain and feeling like kind of out on the outside now, before you realize it, a few minutes later, there's five or six or ten of you standing around laughing and joking, not about the things that you don't have in common, but on the thing that you've come together and you've agreed about and that you do have in common. If for us to live as Christ, then we walk this way with other believers. We focus on and we celebrate the ultimate binding ingredient among all believers, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Church, I don't want to just say that today. I want to live that. Like, I want to know that we have more in common because Christ died for us and he's drawn us to himself than we do about anything else we might not agree on. And when we live our lives in any other way, we minimize the work of Jesus in our life. Going back to Matt Chandler again, he says that when all of us, different kinds of people, walk together in unity for the glory of Christ, the gospel looks really big. Isn't that what we want, is to make much of Jesus? Romans 12, 18, Paul writes, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I want you to see what Paul says here. So far as it depends on you and on me. So it's our responsibility to live peaceably with those around us. Because this has come from someone for 42 years of my life have wanted to be the one who was right. And that's all that matters. 
I mean, I, I'm serious. If you've been around me for longer than five or six years, you know this. I'd argue to the death even if I was wrong just so I could convince you I was right. And you would finally give up because I wouldn't stop. But this means that it falls on us to do the hard things that are required to promote unity. It means that we have to walk in humility first. It means that it's our responsibility to forgive even when it's not easy. Or maybe when the other person isn't even asking for it. It's on us to ask for forgiveness or to go apologize even when it might not be our fault. Just simply for the sake of the unity of the church. It's on us to let the little things go. Friends, it's time to let secondary issues be non issues for the sake of making Christ known to those who don't know him and also for the sake of unity within the global body of Christ. So where does that leave us today? Here's five things you can start doing today to live as Christ, to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. The first thing is you've got to embrace the suffering. Even if it's something minor, thank God that it's not the suffering that he endured. It's not death on a cross. Ask God what he wants to show you from this suffering. This could be, it could be a sickness. It could be financial hardships, betrayal by a friend, <laughs> maybe sending your first word off to college. Whatever it is, take joy in it. Hard things, Jason reminds me all the time, hard things can be good things. Some of you know that we had some flight delays and cancellations getting Caroline home this weekend. Right, we we were it was it was a struggle. We were about, you know, it was tough. I felt I felt terrible that her mom wasn't getting to see her at the time we had been counting down to all summer. This flight's been booked. We knew that flight was landing at midnight Friday night, and she has been counting down. But American Airlines added another twelve or so hours to the wait, and I was texting Sharice, and I was just apologizing to her that she didn't go instead of me or that she didn't go with me. And I know she was hurting, but she said, it'll be okay. She said, enjoy this quality time with your baby girl. And so Friday night, we were, realized we weren't getting there, and we got checked into the hotel. We sat down to eat, and Caroline said, I'll pray over our meal. I said, okay. She thanked God for this unexpected one-on-one -on -one time with Daddy. Yeah. Look, I'm going to tell you something. I talked to her the whole day, the night before. That girl was more than ready to be home in her, in, in, in her own bed. And I know her mama was ready. But they both embraced that suffering. And maybe that's a minor thing to you, but I'm telling you, in our house, it was not. They embraced that suffering, and they thanked God for the time he had given us. Secondly, I want you to find what stirs your affections for Jesus and do those things. See, as believers, we all have those things that we feel like stir up the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's just certain things that when we talk about them, when we experience them, we feel closer to Jesus. Like, for me, there's a few things I'll just share with you. Listening to worship music really stirs my affections. I can't sing at all. You people that sit in front of me, you know this. But I love to worship, right? And I can promise you this. I ride around with the doors and top off my Jeep most of the time, and there are people all down Linton and Linton Cutoff and in Turtle Creek and on Airline and Parks Road and all the way to Benton High School who have, who, who have heard some incredible renditions of some moving music, right? So I know they've heard it. Gospel conversations really move me, and usually these have happened by chance a lot of times, right? I haven't really intentionally sought them out the way that I should. They just happen, but when they happen, I'm always so energized. I get a random text from a buddy, I'm praying for you. 
hey, man, pray for me. Those things energized me. Certain passages in the Bible just get me when I read them, when I talk about them. I can, I can hardly talk about the prodigal son without welling up with tears for how much Jesus loves me. So you need to figure out what those things are for you and do those things. And I can tell you this, it won't be easy. I find myself in quite the dilemma in the mornings. You know, starting in a couple of weeks, Tim Fletcher will have, start having all the local high school football coaches on his show in the morning. And I love listening to what they're saying, especially whoever we're playing that week. I want to know what they're saying about us, right? Are they respecting us? Are they not? Is there bulletin board material I can use? But there's just some mornings I've got to make a decision to plug my arms cord in, turn it on music that, that lifts me up and it stirs my heart to a place of love and attention to Jesus that day. It puts me in a place where I'm much better prepared to shine as a light in a crooked and twisted generation. Third, do something for someone else instead of yourself. That's an easy one. Maybe it's someone you have conflict with or you've offended, or maybe you feel that they've offended you. Do something for them you'd normally do for yourself. Maybe it's something as simple as getting a coffee from PJs or Starbucks, and instead of buying one for yourself that day, buy it for them, right? Purely as a side note here, if I've offended you or if you don't like me, I like vanilla lattes. Fourth, fourth, I want you to pursue Jesus. And I'll admit this is pretty broad, right? But here's what I mean. Don't, don't pursue an experience. Don't chase what you feel as these obligations that you might have to please him. Don't try and earn his good favor or to earn your way out of debt. Jesus paid that debt for us at Calvary so that we don't have to pay it anymore. And if we had to pay it, we couldn't afford it. Instead of all the things, just humbly seek Jesus. And this might involve several of the spiritual disciplines, but I can tell you without a doubt, it's going to involve reading Scripture, because that's God's Word to us, and that's how He speaks to us. And it's definitely going to involve prayer, because that's how we speak to God. And then lastly this morning, I want you to stop majoring in minor things. Seriously. Quit worrying about the things that just don't matter. And when I say they don't matter, I don't mean they're not important. What I mean is they aren't of the utmost importance. Next time you have a problem with something or someone, especially if it's a brother or sister in Christ, ask yourself these two questions. First, is this salvific? Does it have to do with their salvation? Secondly, is this going to matter in 10 years? If the answer to, either one, if the answer to those is no, let it go and move on. I can promise you it's not worth sowing seeds of disunity if the answer is no to those two questions. If the answer to either is yes, you need to address it in love with your fellow laborer for Christ. Chances are, though, it's usually a minor thing that we need to just move on from. Quick example here. My, my girls have a friend they've gone to school with for, I, I, I really think, since elementary school, who's a self-proclaimed atheist. He's not mean or aggressive or hostile towards him. He's, he's, he's a friend. And he's usually not open to the gospel. So the, the girls try to insert whatever they can, whenever they can there. One day there were two other guys uh, who, were, who were both believers, and they were arguing over a secondary issue, right? Some secondary theological issue. And then this young man who, who claims to be an atheist looked at, I think it was Caroline that day, I'm not real sure, it doesn't really matter, but he looked at her and said, don't they believe in the same God? And she said, I was embarrassed. And he's like, yeah, they do. And he looked at her again. He said, then why are they arguing? 
church, we have to be careful. We have to be aware of what disunity within the church looks like to the outside world. Because not only are we called to live in unity as believers, but we are called to show Jesus to the outside world. How would you feel if you learned that your actions, your disagreements about silly things had pushed someone further away from Christ? I want to just sincerely say to all of us today that we are called to live a life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Paul says that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Most of us don't want to die yet, so let's live as Paul did. Let's live as though Christ is the sole purpose for our being. Let's stir our hearts for him and live in unity as children of God. For the believer to die is certainly gain. Until that time comes, though, let's look anxiously towards departing this life to be with Christ and live our lives worthy of him right now. I'm going to call the band up as I pray. Church, we should live a life that's worthy of the gospel each and every day. Let's pray. Father, I come to you this morning just hopefully with, a, with a, as humble a heart as I can possibly have, just incredibly in awe of you. And God, I just have to believe that if we each come in awe of you, we each come humbly to you. God, our lives are going to reflect that, that we're going to live lives that are worthy of your gospel, that we people will surely see us, and they'll see that our sole purpose for living is you, that to live for us would be Christ, and that we would actually look forward to departing to be with you not for any other reason, but just to be in your presence. God, I pray that our church, the global church, would live in unity. They would seek, intentionally seek that unity, not let smaller and lesser things divide us. God, that as we live with you as our sole purpose, our sole focus in life, the lesser things would fade away. We would live as they are, as though they are unimportant because they are. God, let us embrace the suffering. Let us live humbly. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Just a few moments, uh, we're going to open the communion tables. I know that many of you here are already believers, and we invite you to join us in unity at the table. You don't have to be a member of covenant church, but you do have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. I want to encourage you right now to take some time to reflect on your life and to ask yourself if your life is worthy of the gospel. Take this time to ask God to reveal to you any areas where you may need to repent, where you may need to seek reconciliation with a brother or sister in Christ. If you're here today and maybe you aren't a member of the family of God, first of all, let me just say this. We're so glad you're here. We are deeply grateful that you joined us today. We would ask you that you maybe sit this one out and just take some time to digest what you've heard today. We would love to answer any of your questions or talk with you about what a life Jesus looks like. For any of you who would like to 
talk or to pray, members of our prayer team will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you. You guys come when you're ready.